0: Hi, and welcome back to Feed the Queue. I'm Adela Mizrachi, the founder of Podcast Brunch Club, which is like book club but
1: for podcasts. And I'm Lauren Passell. I have two podcast newsletters Podcast the Newsletter and Podcast Marketing Magic. And I also founded a podcast marketing company called Tink. And if you're new here, this is how it works uh, Adela and I are podcast nuts. We listen to so much stuff that we don't see in the Apple charts and everything. So we want to highlight great shows, great episodes that aren't getting enough attention. So every episode of Feed the Q, we're just dropping an episode of something that we love and so that you can feed your Q and make your Q even better. Today, we're featuring an episode from one of my favorite shows of all time. It's called Take It Easy, but it's spelled T-E-I-K-I-R-I-S-I. It's a Cuban slang word. And it's a show hosted by two Cuban American women. It's really about the Cuban American experience. It's hosted by these two women named Carmen and Frida, but it really also is about their friendship. I'm in love with them every time they're talking. I'm wishing I was sitting there in the room with them. And they're really able to balance like history and heavy stuff about Cuba, both present and past, but with a lot of humor. They, it's a delicate balance. And The episode you're about to hear is called El Periodo Especial, Scarcity and Famine. And it's a tough one. It's about a hard time in Cuban history. But there's lighter episodes about Cuban parties, the Cuban sandwich and the Cuban booty.
0: And on this episode, Frida and Carmen are joined by Frida's parents to talk about El Periodo Especial, or the special period, which is basically a very, very long period, some would argue still happening today, of economic hardship and famine that happened in Cuba after the fall of the Soviet Union, because Cuba had been relying on the USSR for military and financial support ever since the Cuban Revolution in 1959. It began in 1991, one year before Frida was born and four years before Frida's family left Cuba. And they experienced extreme forced rations of food, water, energy, gas, cars, everything, medicine. And it was really very tough on the Cuban people. It was impossible to escape and almost more impossible to survive. Obviously, Carmen and Frida's parents survived and eventually escaped to Miami. But they have some unbelievable stories about that period. And so this episode is a little bit of history, but it also is a lot of First person accounts of what happened during that special period. You get a really kind of raw picture of what happened during that period and what people had to suffer through. And the Frida and Carmen use it to try to better understand themselves and their generational trauma. So it's a really beautiful look at a family and the history of that family and sort of how that the trauma of the parents sort of seeped
1: into the bones of the child. And quick thanks to Clever FM for sponsoring the season of Feed the Q. Clever is a podcast app designed for the super listener.
2: Welcome, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. Our last episode featured your immigration story. Carmen, it was really wonderful to do that with you. I'm really grateful to our listeners for taking the time to listen and react to this story. We're going to be focusing a lot throughout the series on subjects that are really close to home, close to our hearts. We're going to be doing a two-part series on El Período Especial. And a big part of these episodes will actually feature my parents. So Frida's mom and dad will be uh, talking about their time in Cuba and their reflections. So what's the Período Especial? In our recent episode with Carmen, we mentioned that she left in 1994 during the height of the Período Especial. And we know this was a time of extreme hardship and scarcity in Cuba. So El Período Especial is actually
3: more formally known as El Período Especial en Tiempos de Paz, which translates to the special period in times of peace. And I think it's really interesting when I'm reading about this, I couldn't find anywhere that explained where the name came from. We know the Cuban government made this name. Immediately I thought, what peace?
2: (laughs) And we'll get into it more. You'll see exactly why I had that thought. The Cuban government definitely came up with this phrase as a way to tell the, the Cuban public Like, we're going to have to make some sacrifices. Some stuff is going to happen. And we're going to call it special.
3: Special. (laughs)
2: Special.
3: So what happened? As I mentioned in my episode, this is a period of time that followed the fall of the Soviet Union. So if we backtrack, we're talking about like 1990, 1991, around there. The Soviet Union had provided economic support to Cuba as part of the Comecon C-O-M-E-C-O-N. And that's an economic organization designed to support communism throughout the world. So basically, the Soviet Union, the USSR, has been Cuba's
2: sugar daddy. Because the USSR is, at this point, subsidizing the entirety of the Cuban economy and also providing Cuba with a ton of fuel. The loss of petroleum is
3: huge because this is literally what fuels agriculture in all of societies so it was really a double whammy it was really a hard tough blow when the channels for importing food closed because it also meant that Cuba was so poorly set up and so ill-equipped to produce food for its own people the other problem is that this causes severe economic shrinkage Its imports and its exports have been decreased by up to 80% and its GDP dropped up to 34%. And I'm stating all of these statistics, but I want you all to take all of the statistics that we mention in this episode and in the coming episode with a grain of salt Because as you can imagine, it's very difficult to collect data from Cuba because the government makes it so difficult. So every paper I've read has said we cannot wholly rely and trust the numbers. However, the point still stands. There was severe economic shrinkage. There was famine and hardship.
2: Yeah, and in the buildup to the Peril Especial, Cuba was not developing its ability to stand on its own without the USSR. Many of the foods that the USSR used to even provide to Cuba ended up being foods that Cuba could have been able to produce domestically. Cuba also began to truly feel the effects of the U.S. embargo in this time. The U.S. embargo had been in place since 1962. But after 1992, the United States passed something called the Cuban Democracy Act, which made an already stringent set of sanctions even more so, since it actually prohibited companies that were in other countries that were subsidiaries of U.S. companies from trading with Cuba and also prevented food and medicine from reaching the islands. Cuba really was just sinking. So we're
3: talking about all of these players at the geopolitical level and sanctions and economies and revolutions happening, but the only people who truly suffer are the ordinary citizens of Cuba, which is
2: what we're going to get into. Yes, today my parents will tell us a first-hand account of what it was like during this period of time. Let's dive in. ¿Cómo están ustedes? Todo bien.
4: Acabamos comiendo
2: unos chicharrones de puerco. Chicharrones de puerco. Okay. How did you officially get food in the periodo especial?
5: The libreta de abastecimiento as always. That was before periodo especial okay. always. When did the libreta de abastecimiento start? With the revolución, but... What happened during the period Especial is that we used to have all the things in the bodega, which is a little market for everybody. It's according to your others, you belong to one specific bodega. You cannot buy in whichever you want. It's just one that is probably next to your house. But before that, we used to have some articles to buy and food to buy every 15 days or every month, whatever. But in the Periodo Especial, there was almost nothing. With that libreta de abastecimiento, mm-hmm. it was nothing in the bodega. We used to have, for example, eggs every 15 days or a month. I, I forgot. There was a point that month and month and no eggs at all. A whole month and no milk. A whole month and not even a piece of meat or, or chicken or anything like that. All those disappeared the period especial.
3: La libreta de abastecimiento. What Frida's mom is talking about here is Cuba's rationing system, which uses a small booklet to track the supplies allowed per individual and the frequency that they're allowed, these items. This system was first introduced in 1962 after the U.S. embargo. It's hard to say whether it was directly resulting from the U.S. embargo or if Cuba would have had to ration products anyway. So just take that with a grain of salt. But even when the USSR was subsidizing, there was still a rationing system. So we have reason to believe that this was part of the way that the Cuban regime was trying to do things. So these rations are not given to people in Cuba for free. That's not what the booklet is about. Rather, this booklet says what items, what amount, how often, and from where the citizens of Cuba are allowed to purchase these items. These items are not just limited to food, but they're also necessary goods, like matches, oils, light bulbs, clothes, and even toys for children. This system provides rations at rates subsidized by the government, but even those rates are still way more expensive than people can actually afford. And let's say you wanted to buy something that is not assigned in your specific bodega or your specific place, And it's not in your booklet, but you need that. You can go outside of the system to try to get those goods. However, it is more expensive altogether than the
2: rationed items in the booklet. How did you find out when certain foods finally arrived?
4: The neighbors would yell to each other, Llegó la cebolla, Fefa, Llegó la cebolla. And then maybe there was a truck arriving in our direction. Nobody knew, but then we used to form big lines waiting for hours and sometimes when it was your turn to get whatever item it was over so you didn't get to get any sometimes in the morning people would form lines for whatever might come that day most of the time nothing came in and you spend the whole day in long lines waiting for that one item
2: when I was there and I was interviewing my dad, he said, Llegó la cebolla, llegó la cebolla. He's actually imitating what it's like to be in the neighborhood for a truck to arrive with cebolla, which is onions, and for people to be shouting to each other, the onions have arrived, the onions have arrived, because someone was spotting that a truck with this one item was heading in their direction and then they would go over to the truck. So it wasn't just onions, it could have been sugar, it could have been any one item, but one thing would arrive at a potential time no one knew when and when it did they were all shouting to each other so that's what that's what my dad was uh was saying over there
5: the product that we used to eat was mainly chickpeas a little bit of rice and just almost everyday chickpeas and for lunch and for dinner with no condiments
3: Frida's mom is saying chickpeas But actually, what she means is chicharos, which is split peas.
5: I was pregnant in the 90s, 91, and you were born in 92, right? I was pregnant in that hard time, and I almost didn't eat. I don't know how I survived because it was only chickpeas all the time. I didn't want to eat that because I was feeling so bad, and there was no more options to eat. When you have a condition like being pregnant, they put it in a cart. And with that car, you have the right de comprar to buy that milk. Mm. You were not pregnant. You were not allowed to buy it. Since I was pregnant, I was allowed to have some milk like every other day. But it wasn't milk like the one we drink here. It has another taste. I said that was milk. But after they processed the milk powder, they just take away all the fat. So just milk. And sometimes a piece of chicken, like a little... Thigh or something, a very small piece every 15 days, something like that.
3: Frida's mom is talking about a little piece of chicken, a thigh or something, a very small amount of rice. I was actually reading up into this and I was looking at ration cards and this definitely tracks. It was looking like at some point there was one pound of chicken allowed per household per month And up to six ounces of coffee per household per month. So at Mm -hmm. one point, imagine that is all the meat that you got for your family. And your family could be just you
2: or it could be you and six other people. Just let Mm -hmm. that sink in. Absolutely. During the period especial, more often than not, the milk that is supplied is milk powder not milk. A lot of the food that was supplied was food that had to last for a very long time and I'm not too sure where they were getting it from. There was milk powder or cerelac, which is another form of powdered drink.
3: Yeah, and while we're on the subject, I shared some photos on Instagram and on our blog post and one of those photos is some people under a tent in Guantanamo with a bunch of food items and you'll see in that picture there's a bunch of Parmalat branding everywhere, like the milk, Parmalat. I remember this in Guantanamo as like highly coveted. Like we were so happy
2: that we had Parmalat milk. You had milk, you didn't have powder. Yes, (laughs) so
3: actual milk, which
2: (laughs) which now I'm like, wow, (laughs) that's where we Uh were at. (laughs) This is a little bit about the official way you obtain food. What were some of the unofficial ways? Because it seems that the food that you got... This doesn't seem like enough.
4: I used to go with my bicycle to the fields and basically still, We used to go like 15 miles, 20 miles away from the city to the fields and get whatever we could get our hands. But sometimes we were in a plantain fields and a gar would emerge And would ask you to go because they would tell me, they told me to shoot, to kill. But we were just a little bit more than teenagers in in our 20s trying to steal food from the fields which supposedly belonged to everybody. We used to go a long ways and then when we came back with some scraps of food, the police would stop you and take it away from you. So people coming in would let you know that there was uh, a police point and you go through the fields with your bicycle and uh, you would try to avoid the police. And then you would emerge in another little town and people coming in would tell you, Hey, there's another point with police searching. So you would avoid them all the time. You ended up like doing like a hundred miles with that bicycle full of at least some spices and probably some fruits.
3: We've been hearing Frida's parents talking about stealing, and we just want to clarify what this means. So because the state technically owns everything, the fields, the animals, the houses, the buildings, every single thing is owned by the state. If you were taking something from the fields, like Frida's dad is talking about, or if you happen to have a cow in your backyard and you slaughtered it, you would technically be stealing from the state, which is considered treason. This comes with severe consequences. You could go to jail and that's probably a lenient
2: punishment. So that's what we're talking about when we're saying that people are stealing. Literally anything is stealing. It's interesting to hear (laughs) my dad talking about how much he biked then. He bikes a lot now. He does triathlons (laughs) and (laughs) bikes like every single weekend, but here's the difference. He does it for pleasure. Not to get food and to potentially be caught and shot. (laughs) Something I heard my parents joke about a lot of times, they would say that the police would strategically place themselves so that they would let you go through the fields collecting all of this food and stop you just as you had filled your basket with food so that they could then stop you, apprehend the food, and steal it themselves, and take it home to their families, and you had done the work for them. Your dad says that the police would say to him, we've been
3: told to shoot to kill. That is not an exaggeration. Just to be clear, this is how the regime operates. It's by sheer force. And if you like it, great. And if you don't like it, well, you probably get shot. For real.
5: And the important thing to say here is that we had the principle as a family not to steal because we don't do that. But Cubans at that point, we had to do that because there's no other choice. because We we need to live. Humans live with food. If you don't have food, you die. And it, it was a matter of living or dying. So we have to go wherever it was possible to go just to get some food. And unfortunately, it is a degradation of the society was what had been happening in Cuba because of the government not giving the, the possibility to get people food.
3: As we mentioned before, the USSR had cut all of their petroleum imports to Cuba. Milk and meat specifically are two food items that belong to industries that rely a lot on having petroleum in order to produce. Another point here that's important is that there is no way of distributing foods. I have seen pictures of people on actual covered wagons, like in cities, a bunch of people piled (laughs) into a wagon being led by a pair of horses. And this is how people are getting around. And Frida's dad is biking through fields. On average, these rations that Frida's mom is talking about, this only accounts for 61% of the calories that Cubans are supposed to be getting. These rations that are supposed to be keeping people alive are not doing that at all. Like, they're not even coming close. In 1998, the total monthly expenses of a household amounted to 140 to 162 Cuban pesos. And the average monthly wage was only 217 pesos so you're not even making enough money to be buying the fraction of the calories you're supposed to be consuming with your
2: ration booklet this is absolutely why they needed to get from other sources why they needed to go to the black market why they needed to do this quote-unquote stealing (laughs) it's really powerful that your mom specifically goes out of her way to say
3: hey like we're not stealing because we're thieves. This is what we had to do.
2: Like we are a family here. I'm sure she feels ashamed that this might be interpreted as as such, that it could be interpreted that like my dad went out and stole Absolutely. just because. And I think it's something that, while my dad did not mention this in the interview, something he's told me many times before is that living in Cuba made him feel like A criminal for just existing. Mm -hmm. I'm sure we'll be able to get into just on how many levels that was true for him and some others, especially in our next episode. But in this one, we already see how someone with the desire to feed his family becomes a criminal or someone worthy of being shot or arrested. So what did you make from that
4: food? So we had to start inventing a lot of culinary Franken food like the We used to put a chickpeas on coffee to make it last.
5: Picadillo de cascara de plátano. We just season it with a piece of onion and pepper and salt and a little bit of tomato, whatever. So we do that and it takes like a real grommet. But it was an invention with banana peel, with the grapefruit peel. We used to make something that looks like a steak. So we season it. Right? The peel and wheel bread. Another thing that they give us the chance to buy it in the carniceria was picadillo de soya. But it's not any picadillo de soya. You say hey, soya taste, no. It, it was something that was horrible to eat. Out of putting a lot of seasoning, you may at least I sometimes eat a little spoon of that. But it was something that we didn't know what, how they made that. They call it picadillo de soya. Mm-hmm. And we had to just believe that was like Picadillo. So yeah, there was no meat at all. There's no egg. There's nothing. Okay, but vegans live here with some herbs or whatever. No, because we didn't have any vegetable, anything. The only vegetable we have was sometimes an avocado, seasonal, sometimes a tomato, but still, you know, that they gave mm-hmm. it to us. How can you live with no food?
3: What is picadillo? Picadillo is ground beef cooked with tomato sauce and onion some people put raisins in it that's controversial ingredient i'm in favor of the raisins i am also team raisins let us know are you team raisins or team no raisins so that's what picadillo is and you typically eat it with rice and i specifically
2: like it with rice and a side of banana The banana does go really well with it, yeah. Do you also eat it with olives? I also like it con aceituna.
3: Picadillo is comfort food. For me, picadillo is like the type of thing that you make in a
2: giant batch and then you eat it over the week when you don't feel like cooking. Carmen, I know we talk all the time, but I didn't tell you that I tried vegan picadillo yesterday. (gasps) Did you tell yeah. your mom? She would have a heart no, attack. No, I didn't. I didn't. I'm keeping this a secret from her right now. Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, so, so why would your mom have a heart attack if she heard that you had vegan picadillo? Because I basically am having picadillo de soya. From her perspective, I'm basically <laughs> having the food that she had in the periodo especial, even though definitely the version that I'm having is delicious, produced in like a a lovely way where it tastes like meat and isn't considered animal feed. But from the way that my parents described the kinds of food that they had, it was disgusting. And so how could I choose (laughs) to not eat meat when I have access, when that option had been taken away from them for so long? I've been vegetarian for a while now. And I think at some point my parents hopefully jokingly said that I can't be vegetarian and Cuban at the same time.
3: I've actually heard that (laughs) and get it, but also like it's 2020 and we're in the US and technology and delicious things happen.
2: Give it a shot, guys. You mentioned Serelac earlier. My parents used to like these comedians called Punto y Coma. They made an entire song about Serelac.
5: Oh my God. I just remember my mom was bending over laughing. Oh, the Serelac was something like a, a replacement for milk. Made out of, I think, soy and whatever. They put that powder in the bag and we didn't know how was that made at all. You don't have an ingredients list. No nutritional fats for any product in Cuba ever. That oh. We never had that. Never, mm-hmm. ever had that. We know that was something that they said, you can eat this, or so eat it if you want to leave. I looked up Cere lac
2: and I was like, wait a second, it's a product, Cere lac or whatever. It is a Nestle product, so I'm wondering whether that's what they got. It's like a enriched wheat beverage.
4: In Cuba, you get a concussion and they call it whatever they want to call it with a beautiful name, but you don't know what you're getting, okay? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you had just to trust that you're not going to die just by eating that. You're going to survive one more day. And with that came people who were really resourceful and started creating steak from frazada de piso.
2: So this would be steak from a mop cloth.
4: (laughs) Also... The the pizza, with the cheese substitute would be condoms and rojo would be the red stuff on top of the pizza, which is <laughs> which uh, the resourceful people would try to sell you all those concoctions and people were hungry and people would buy it.
5: But out of that, yeah, people die. Uh, of course, it, those people created that just to, to sell it to people that didn't know what was it. They bought it. Of course, people get sick and people die. Of course, those people were, uh, because it was totally not edible. People start tricking each other, getting advantage of the situation just to get some money, to continue to buy all the things. But what was edible? Or oh, was that the piste de toronja, was the picadillo, de cascara de platano? It was invention from home. And the invention from the government was that the picadillo de soya, the pasta de oca, the cerela. That was official. In that's what we have officially to buy.
2: We should comment about the intensity and ridiculousness of the inedible foods that were created during this time. Many Cubans will have memory of these incidences of like food, quote unquote, that were made from pieces of mop cloth. Or condoms. And it's not okay. Yeah, so we have here
3: what Frida's dad originally called the frankenfoods. And those are the foods that are actually edible. That are just inventions. You can eat them and you're not going to die. And then you have the resourceful inventions. As Frida's mom is cleverly euphemizing. And those are things that are actually dangerous to eat. Because people are so desperate to make a buck. And people are also so desperate for food that people start tricking each other into buying food items that are not actually edible and then people get sick and die frida's mom said something super powerful earlier here she said that this was a degradation of society that is the best way of putting mm-hmm. it this is what people are resorting to there's so much chaos that comes out of this that isn't even related to food many horrible things happened in many other sectors of society in healthcare, in law and everything society is spiraling downward people are losing their minds, basically. The
4: same happened with the drinks. Azuquín, chispetren, people would distill it at home. People would die because sometimes you get a different component if you don't know how to distill it.
2: So these are alcoholic, alcoholic. drinks, azuquín and chispetren. Do you have any idea what these things are?
4: You would get whatever and you distill it in a in like a pressure cooker with an alambique, like mm-hmm. a coil. But if you don't know how to calculate You will get different things that are poisonous.
3: Chispedreng is like something I grew up listening to my whole life. If my dad was at a party and he tried somebody's fancy alcohol, and if my dad ever came home being like, ese ron sabía (laughs) chispedreng, you knew it was bad. (laughs) And so what is chispedreng? Chispa de tren. Chispa is spark. De tren is of train. So spark of train. This is a spirit. Think of like the equivalent of moonshine. You use whatever mm-hmm. you have and then you would distill that and then they call it chif And people would just drink it and they would just be drunk from like poison, basically.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it's just so high in alcohol. Yeah. That like it will, like it can ignite. <laughs> yeah. So one of the reasons why this episode even started to exist is because Carmen and I were talking about identity. We're talking about components of ourselves and who we are that we could introduce to our listeners early on. I immediately realized that a big part of my story was what my parents had gone through and what kind of baggage and trauma and everything that they carried with them, that we carried together coming to this country. What my parents went through, it doesn't just disappear Once you come to the United States, once you suddenly have access to food, my parents still have a scarcity mindset. My mom's had one paper towel that she's used for a couple years and she washes it over and over again. And that's just one example. The reality is she could have another paper towel now, but she won't.
5: (laughs) I used to make wines out of whichever appears at the moment. So I used to sell that to people in the neighborhood. There's something that happened in the period Especial. People started getting to drink more and more because people wanted to forget what was happening. Young people, most of the time, they were drunk. Any time of the day, they used to knock my door to, to just buy a, a bottle of wine. Anytime. any time, people start getting sick because when you eat that bad, you start getting sick. So then Fidel Castro came, came with the idea, probably uh, for his international reputation. Okay, le- I don't want too many people to die right now. Like, let them live. So he started giving the pastillitas amarillas to people, supposedly was vitamins.
4: People so- were used to pastillitas to make up uh, makeshift yellow rice because oh, la smart. pastillita would be yellow.
2: You know what the yellow probably is? Riboflavin. Riboflavin is a yellow dye. Yellow pastitas. So these yellow pills that my parents are talking about, when I was interviewing them and said that it's probably riboflavin or riboflavin, it's probably true because a deficiency in B vitamins was causing a neuropathy epidemic in Cuba. So due to dietary restrictions, at least 50,000 people were affected with neuropathy So what's neuropathy? It's a damage or dysfunction of one or more nerves. It can lead to numbness, tingling, muscle weakness. And in Cuba, the situation got so bad that some professional association of neurologists in the United States ended up writing a paper where they were strongly recommending an end to the U.S. embargo for humanitarian reasons so that Cuba can gain access to some medicines and foods because of the neuropathy epidemic, which was the largest of the century.
3: I would love to know more about how an organization of professional neurologists in the U.S. got their hands on this piece of information enough to say, hey, this is a big problem. People
2: in Cuba are suffering and the U.S. can do something about it. Due to the magnitude of this epidemic, the Cuban government actually requested help from oh. the WHO, Wow. and they sent a mission of some experts. Some scientists joined in from the USA and elsewhere. They were trying to investigate why the neuropathy was happening. That's when they found that the primary cause was nutrition. And so that's how they got wind of it. Okay, <laughs> like, cool. Good to know. During this time,
3: while all sorts of shit is hitting the fan, people have gotten so desperate and possibly a little crazy that I have found reports that said that in the Havana Zoo, animals were reported
2: missing. Oh my God. If that's not too crazy (laughs) for you to stomach. (laughs) Did you see what I did there? I made a pun. Oh my God, Carmen. I want to ask you about how
5: do you obtain goods other than food? There was no goods at that time. You need to live with whatever you have from before and save it as much as you can, because you all have the hope that's going to end, that this is going to end. Because they were always saying, this is one more year of period of They were always uh, tricking people in Cuba. You don't know exactly what's going to happen and what was the solution they're going to find to fix that mess, a mess that never ends and is still there. For example, to brush your teeth, you need to use the same toothbrush and cleaning. And there was soap with baking soda, we get getting a piece of soap that we have to save too, because even soap was like regulated.
3: The government is literally managing the people's expectations by saying, hey, this is a special period of time. It's going to end. There's only one more year of this left. What is the government thinking? What were they doing? Obviously, they're lying to people and saying that, oh, this is going to last one more year. But did they have any perspective on what
2: would bring the end? I wish we knew, but from the looks of it, they weren't going to make changes drastic enough. It's possible that what would have been required was to admit that this system was not working to serve the people. was not feeding the people. Yes, 100% freedom with you. But isn't the fact that you have named this period of time a special name, isn't that already an admittance? The Cuban government has had for some time come up with a lot of different names for different things and asked Cuba to like brace for this or that under the idea that this was part of sustaining the revolution. So at this point, the government is asking people to put up with all of this stuff in the name of the revolution. Yeah, and it's really hard to see what they are working towards at this point. My parents think that the Período especial has never ended. There are some people who believe the Período especial continues to this day. Others might believe that after Cuba was able to get some support and some petroleum and fuel from Venezuela, that things got a little better for Cuba, but that there could be another special period coming. It's been 29 years that the Cuban government might have been saying, just one more year. Yeah, let's keep going. Let's do this. We're going to make this little change, just one more year, keep pulling through. And it also speaks to how frustrated people are right now in Cuba from having suffered through this for so long and being like, I don't believe you. Nothing's going to change. Let's just do a quick little history. So before the revolution, we had Batista in power
3: and basically Cuba was on the U.S.'s puppet strings. The U.S. would say jump and Cuba would ask how high. Then the revolution came, swept through, changed everything and then the U.S. became replaced with the USSR. In the Comecon, which we just mentioned, Cuba became incredibly dependent on the USSR. And now, fast forward into early 2000s, we have Cuba becoming very dependent on Venezuela for oil, for petroleum. And so it's just kind of like this never-ending story of Cuba being hyper-dependent on only one power across the years, and it doesn't work
2: (laughs) and it's just like history repeating itself over and over again let's entertain the thought that the purpose of the revolution was to self-govern and to be sovereign and to have a movement that is of the people i'm not saying that this is what happened the spirit of the original revolution was to not be puppeted by an outside force and yet (laughs) and here we are here we are, right? Did Fidel Castro have to do one more year of Perido Especial in his own home? Did he suffer? Did the people of the Comité and the higher-ups
5: no, suffer through the periodo Especial? Trinidad is next to a place called Tope de Coyante. Tope de Coyante is high in the mountain in the Escambri. So there was a house that belongs to Fidel Castro, the Comité Central. The um, people were there. There are other houses around the country. Those houses have to be ready every day just in case Fidel passed by. Every day they had to make food just in case Fidel decide, okay, I'm going to pass by. If he probably goes to those houses, for example, that house in Topo de Coyanti, like twice in a year, okay, but the rest of the year, that food used to be, at the end of the day, in the garbage.
2: I know people that during the periodo especial were transporting all the foods over to parties, that the Comité Central was having. No one's asking anyone to starve. But the kinds of luxuries that he definitely gave himself were in stark contrast to what the people had to go through. So, Mami, you were pregnant during this time. How was it like to go through a pregnancy and give birth in the period especial?
5: I don't know how I survived. I went supposedly healthy to the hospital. At least my blood tests were fine. I went to the hospital because my water broke. I went to the hospital with the dress that my cuñada lent to me because they didn't have clothes actually for pregnancy. And I was assuming that in the hospital, they're going to give me a change to go to a clean bed. They didn't give me a change of clothes. It was white, that dress. So, they moved me over to that salon and they put me in a bed, still wet from someone else. And I was feeling bad. I didn't think that I was going to get sick. I think, okay, how can I tell the the family member that dress is not going to recover out of being on top of that? That dress I have to throw in the garbage after that. I didn't have a way to communicate. With my family, not even with my husband, to tell him, bring me some cheat. Nobody was allowed to go with me. And every time they asked the um, front desk, how is she doing? Everything is fine. Everything is fine. I was almost dying because the things, after a few hours, I started getting an infection. And the infection was getting worse. So they started putting me antibiotics. And there was a point that I get a septicemia. I think any other person died under those conditions. I was. 30 hours in that condition, 30 hours before they gave me to the salón de operaciones to surgery for cesárea.
2: Just to clarify, you were there waiting in a room. Your water had broke. broke. At some point, they give you antibiotics because you have an infection. But you're just waiting there. Do you have
5: anyone there? There are doctors, but those doctors didn't care at all. The system is that if you die, they report you as a murió de parto. And no consequences at all. So that team of doctors that worked with me the majority of that time, they didn't care because I, I was with the septicemia already. I was infected. Then came another team early in the morning, another team of doctors. They switched. For me, that man was like, oh my God, this is Jesus Christ came to save me. Because I told that doctor when I saw him, I was having contractions, very painful. I didn't have the strength to talk when that doctor came. And I told him, one more pain, I'm going to die. One more contraction, I'm going to die. He said, you're actually going to die. You're actually going to die. And they put me in the salon really quick. He didn't see my clinic history. He asked me, what is your blood type? I said, opositivo and he told everybody quick opositivo quick really quick rápido he just trust me because he didn't have the time to look at any paper that was like something crazy but he saved my life he saved my life and your life it's unbelievable this the story is unbelievable
2: did it seem like they were trying to avoid the operating room
5: they wanted to avoid that because that's the indication from the government. You need to just save anesthesia. You need to save all the expenses in the operational room.
4: You had to get your own light bulb, your own wooden pail, your own soap, all that because they didn't have any of that. And they still don't.
2: What do you know about hospitals today in Cuba?
4: For regular people, it's still the same. You had to get your own piece of soap and get it there because sometimes not even the doctors have one you have to pay extra to the cleaning crew so they can clean with a clean mop and you had to take your own clothes and your own bed sheets and your own supply of water because there's no water everything you cannot count on the system
5: My cousin's daughter, she gave birth like a year ago in Cuba. The doctor, when getting to the room, the first question is to her, can you lend me the soap to wash my hand?
4: The elevator might not be working. If you're sick, somebody in your family had to carry you upstairs, a caballito. If you're in the third floor, there's no elevator or maybe there's a blackout. So you have to just carry the sick people.
2: My mother and other pregnant women during this time were carrying children while being hungry, while experiencing malnutrition. And then on top of that, heading into hospitals that were really not prepared to to assist them. There was just such a shortage of medical supplies during this time. When my mom went into the hospital, it was at the start of the periodo especial. So there's a lot of these things had changed and she had she was not aware that she needed to bring everything if she was going to be treated
3: i also have a super dramatic ridiculous birth story my mom was brought in the middle of labor they were in the middle of doing a c section and there was some sort of accident where a train crashed and some other pregnant lady was wheeled in and all they did was throw a sheet over my mom belly completely gashed open with me still in it, by the way. And they just put her to the side, worked on this other lady who I believe ended up dying. And my mom was literally right there witnessing all of this for hours and hours while her belly was open, getting infected. I have a feeling that Frida and I were
2: not outliers. We're not. Actually, there is a paper in the NIH. It said that in the period especial... There was a 60% increase in maternal mortality. It was actually a paper that compared the situation in Cuba and the Perú Especial to a similar famine that happened in North Korea. At your lowest,
3: at your most vulnerable, when you're sick, when you're needing of medical care, your government is failing you. So we've talked about the lack of actual resources, but how does that actually affect healthcare. When you don't have resources, doctors aren't able to actually do their jobs. And if they're not actually able to do their jobs, well, they have to start making some pretty crazy ethical and moral decisions right then and there. During this time, children were prioritized. If there was a kid that needed to be hospitalized for like a meningitis that required a specific antibiotic, and that hospital didn't have it. They would find that specific antibiotic in other hospitals, immediately have it brought in and given to that child. And this other hospital that had the antibiotic, it's not like they had a surplus of it. So this would be taken away from an adult. This is the ecosystem in hospitals that we're working with. If you were a surgeon and you had to be, you had to walk into a 13, 14-hour surgery knowing that you didn't have the right tools in order to save a person, you were essentially a grim reaper a lot of those doctors abandoned ship they were like if i can't actually perform my duties as a doctor why would i continue to be a doctor not to mention there's lots of other incentives for for people to go work in other fields
2: where they're able to steal things that are more beneficial for their life. We've argued before that the period especial may not have ended. There is still a shortage of medical supplies. Any Cuban-American who travels back to Cuba, we know we have to return with medicine and not even like special medicine. We have to return with like aspirin, ibuprofen, because these are things that we know that our families in Cuba may not have access to cuba exports medical supplies to this day
3: and they have exported doctors which i find super ironic that cuba
2: is known on a global scale for quality of health care after all of this i think my parents and other cubans have been in- incredibly resilient and honestly they meet it with humor now They laugh so much about it and think it's so ridiculous. I end up asking my parents how much they weighed right before they came to the United States, which was in 1995. And my mom says she was around 98 pounds. And my dad, who's a tall, larger man who looks super skinny as a triathlete, but weighs 160 pounds, he weighed 130 pounds max. Yeah,
3: I read that the average
2: Cuban citizen lost... An average of 20 pounds during el periodo especial from just not getting enough to eat. In my blog post, I may include a a slightly cropped photo of them and me. They fed me pretty well. They managed to, and I'm also grateful for that. Thank you, mommy, papi. Speaking of humor, (laughs) we're going to let my parents, or my dad at the very least, introduce the cubanismo for this episode.
4: Entero como el picadillo.
2: So what does entero como el picadillo mean?
4: Imagine that you want to put a a smiley face to the necessities in Cuba and you say, no, I feel entero, but como el picadillo, Uh (laughs) which is the opposite.
2: So it's, I feel as put together as ground meat. I feel like a steak,
4: but actually (laughs) ground meat.
2: Is ground meat whole? (laughs) That's perfect given all the different iterations of ground meat the Cubans managed to make during this time. There are so many circumstances affecting the lives of Cuban people. The player that is most responsible for the actual well-being of the Cuban people is the Cuban administration and the regime in place. You'd think that it has a responsibility to protect the lives of its citizens, and this is what still ended up happening under this authoritarian rule. And the authoritarian rule, that's what we're going to end up talking about in part two of El Período Especial.
4: Take it easy, my friend.
5: Take it easy,
3: Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. Don't forget to check out our blog post and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at Take It Easy Pod. Big thanks to our patrons Jesse, Kellis, Yvette, Josh, and Daniel. Thanks so much for supporting us. And if you want to become a patron, we will be releasing exclusive content on Patreon. So if you want to join that club, feel free to go check out the link for that. Big, warm, wonderful thank you to Frida's parents for their voices and lending their experience for this episode. It wouldn't be possible without them. And we are eternally
1: grateful. Thank you so much. And don't forget to take it easy. And we're back. Okay, so Adella, what'd you think?
0: Well, I didn't mention this before the episode dropped, but I actually have been to Cuba. So I went back in 2004, I want to say, and I was part of a uh, educational program that's how I was able to go because it was like I had to get a very special visa not every nobody was actually able to go back then and I was getting a master's degree and so I was able to get an educational visa and go on a trip with school and I mean, a lot of the things that they talked about in that episode really track like it was just a really interesting experience, beautiful country, lovely people. It is a little bit or at least it was at the time very stuck in time, you know, like the old cars, and very 1960s kind of like they've just had to make do with what they had. But we were escorted everywhere. We were watched, I am sure, you know, and. It was it's it's an interesting place to go. So I really enjoy that they take the time to kind of give us a little bit of a sense of a country that we would never really a lot. Most of us haven't had experience with, even though it's
1: what, 90 miles away or something. I didn't know you had been there before. I, I always learn something oh, yeah. new about you. But it, it's <laughs> funny because that it has to do with another episode recommendation I want to get from the same show. episode seven. Is called Cuba a vintage playground, and Carmen and Frida like reflect on this like recent surge of tourism. Like people, it's Americans mm. going back to Cuba, and people who want to visit it, like quote, before it changes. You know, you're talking about like the cool cars and stuff. Not that you were, you know, being harmful in your trip there. You were there for a reason, but um, a lot of people just go because they think it's like a cool time to go, and that kind of attitude has a negative effect on the people of Cuba that are actually living there. And it's interesting to hear Carmen and Frida talk about it because it's this place that they love and they feel connected to, but it nearly killed their parents and they were lucky to escape. They still have family there. And sometimes when Cuban Americans go back to Cuba, they have to bring them supply, like medical supplies and stuff. Like the people there are still hurting in many ways. Carmen and Frida left when they were very young, but they're kind of like reacting to hearing about people kind of going back and not understanding what it means for Americans to go back.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. And even just like sort of the strife within a family about whether or not to go back. But I have another question for you. If they liked this episode, what else should they listen to?
1: Okay, so there's this show called Scattered. It's a series from WNYC, and it was created by this Cuban-American comedian, Chris Garcia he kind of talks about his dad getting older and having a dying wish that his family would scatter his ashes off the coast of Cuba and Chris's mom, who is like a very funny character in this series. She doesn't care about her husband's dying wishes. And she's like, I'm never going back to Cuba again. So it's Chris's like journey into like getting to know his father better and trying to do right by his dad. And it's very is serious and emotional, but Chris obviously is so funny. His mom is funny. It's a delight. It's called Scattered.
0: Yeah, that is such a great recommendation. Scattered was such a great listen and such the perfect recommendation for this particular show, like Takerisi and Scattered are like the perfect combo. What do you think they should listen to if they like this episode? I want to recommend an episode of a show. I really love Latino USA, which is a an NPR podcast, but there was an episode called The Quavedos, Quevedos, Q U E V E D O S, if I'm not mistaken. And if you like the sort of like child parent conversation about family from Tikarisi, I think you'll like this episode. This one explores there's a young journalist who is sort of exploring his own family history. He doesn't really have an extended family or he doesn't know his extended family and he's not really sure why. He just knows that his mother has sort of kept him from them and he's not really sure why and he sort of discovers some things along the way about his family, a little bit about generational trauma and it's ultimately like a really beautiful vignette of a mother's love for her sons. She's a single mother who raised two boys and it's a really beautiful episode. So I will include a link to that in the show notes. And I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you another question because I feel like you might have another podcast recommendation in your back pocket. Am I am I picking I up do. on something?
1: <laughs> I do can you see in my face I that totally I want to cram in something? Okay. <laughs> what do you got? Well, ooh, I, I'm really I, I could go on for hours, but I also just wanna point out that you might know the name Stephanie Fu. Mm-hmm. Do you? She yes, to this American Life, very talented producer. Lots of her stories are in this American Life. She actually wrote a book about generational trauma and it's called What My Bones Know. And it just came out. So it's like a memoir about her own PTSD with growing up as the child of immigrants. And I have not read it yet, but it's on my to do list. But I was just thinking it's kind of the perfect. You know if you enjoy this kind of story and stephanie who if you're a super fan you know you might really enjoy what my bones know but i also want to give just something new i discovered it's a spotify original and it's called naomi takes america naomi is a japanese comedian if you lived in japan you would definitely know her she has one of the biggest instagram followings in japan and you know, she moved to America recently and started this podcast to better understand American culture and learn English. So every single episode, she invites just a regular American onto the show. You can apply if you want. And I have applied, by the way. Oh my God, I and, can't wait you know, to hear that she, episode. <laughs> oh, I'm crossing my fingers. She asked them about their culture, their food, you know, so she's learning about Texas barbecue and Wawa. And I love it because I even learn a little bit about stuff that I didn't know about America, but also it's just very sweet and warm. And it's like Naomi makes a new friend every episode and she's very funny. And I, I love every single episode and I hope to be on the show one day. So it's Naomi takes America. That sounds like a great show. I'm going to go subscribe now.
0: Well, That is it from us listener. If you have a podcast recommendation that you tell everybody about, we want you to tell us about it. You can email us at feed the Q. That's Q-U-E-U-E at gmail.com. Or you reach out on social media. All the links to everything we talked about are in the show notes. Thanks and happy listening.